want to start with a very basic question this morning. How do you know that Jesus is the Son of God? How do you know that he's the Messiah promised in the Old Testament? What went into your decision to accept him for who he said he was? No doubt the testimony of Scripture played a big role in your acceptance of Jesus. But for some, the Scriptures are not enough. Even though we've had 2,000 years to study analyze and debate the evidence, some still find it hard to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And contrary to the contention of some, Jesus did openly admit he was the Son of God. When questioned by the Sanhedrin and asked straight out if he was a Son of God, he replied, yes, I am. Now, it is true that he didn't go around constantly declaring himself to be the Messiah. To do so would have only fanned the flames of rebellion against Rome because most Jews were looking for a political Messiah. But the things Jesus said and did should have made evident who he was. And for some, they did. Others, however, wanted more evidence. In fact, some demanded proof. Now, it's not wrong to seek evidence concerning Jesus and his claims. It isn't now, and it wasn't then. In fact, I'm convinced that God will provide the evidence needed to anyone who sincerely desires to know the truth and who is open and willing to accept it. Demanding proof, however, is not an acceptable response for a couple of reasons. The first reason is quite simply that some things are beyond the reach of absolute proof. And generally speaking, things that took place in the past, especially the distant past, fit into that category. You can assemble overwhelming evidence that makes possible a very convincing conclusion about something in the past, but you can never prove it absolutely. So no, I cannot prove to you that Jesus is who he said he was. I can't even prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he existed. Some things are beyond the reach of proof. The second reason... Demanding proof is not an acceptable response. It's quite frankly that demanding proof is often the response of a hard heart. A heart that does not want to accept the truth. You know, a defiant demand to prove it is often a ploy to keep from having to make a difficult decision. And generally one that will require change. And that's how some responded after Jesus cast out a demon in our text last week. As we noted, the multitudes marveled. But some accused Jesus of being in league with Beelzebul. He answered that accusation last week. Today we see his response to those who demanded a sign from heaven, who demanded that he prove the source of his power. Now they could obviously see the hand of God, and the deliverance of a man from the grip of Satan. 
But they insisted another sign be given to prove the validity of the sign they had just been given through the deliverance. In his response, Jesus indicated the sign would be given, but not what they were looking for. Continuing our study in Luke's gospel, we're in the 11th chapter, ready for verses 29 and 30. And as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. Jesus said a wicked generation seeks signs. Now, why is that? Because they're never satisfied. And that's because they don't want to believe. You know, there's a fundamental difference between honest questions and doubt and a blind refusal to accept the truth. And a blind refusal is what he was facing here. They had already seen plenty to know who Jesus was. They just didn't want to believe it. So they, in effect, said, make us believe Call forth a lightning bolt from heaven or, or something undeniable and force us to believe. Jesus wouldn't do it. He wouldn't give them the kind of sign they wanted because he knew their heart. He knew they were representatives of a wicked, unbelieving generation. Now, when Gideon asked for a sign, it was given. The fleece was made wet and then dry. He just needed his courage bolstered by the assurance that the marching orders he had received were actually from God. Jesus knew those who were demanding a sign from him would never be convinced. He would always hear a defiant, you can do better than that. So he said no. No sign would be given except for one. A sign that would definitively answer honest questions about his identity. And an answer that solved something that puzzled me about a particular fresco on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. I know, where did that come from? Well, I recently read a fascinating book about Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel. And the thought and theological understanding, as well as the unbelieving talent that went into Michelangelo's masterpiece, is mind-boggling. And discovering why he painted what he painted was as exciting as reading a really good mystery novel. I really couldn't put it down. Now, I'm sure we're all familiar with the creation of Adam that graces the ceiling, you know, the, the finger of God, you know, reaching down the finger of man. I even had a, a necktie with that on it, but I got rid of it because it embarrassed me to wear it. I'm just not as comfortable with nudity as was Michelangelo. <laughs> anyway, it was another painting that really puzzled me. The painting of Jonah. 
Surprisingly, Jonah is the largest and most prominent of all the figures on the ceiling. He's placed directly above the altar and is the first detail of the entire ceiling to come into view when entering the chapel. Now, it is true that Jonah is pictured with his head held back in an awkward position, a position that Michelangelo had to endure for four years while painting the ceiling. But I think he had a better reason for placing it where he did. Jesus said the sign of Jonah would be the only sign given to an unbelieving generation. I'm sure you remember the story of Jonah. How he was ordered to go to Nineveh and declare God's judgment against it, but fled by sea in the other direction. How he was then cast into the sea to save the ship, only to be swallowed by a large fish. After three days in the belly of the fish, he was vomited up on the shore and told again to go to Nineveh. That time he obeyed. And surprisingly, and to his chagrin, Nineveh repented. Jesus said, just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so would the Son of Man be to that generation. Now, Luke doesn't tell us, but Matthew spells out the specifics of that sign. In Matthew 12:40, we read, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, don't let that three days and three nights throw you. Now, if we have our timetable correct, Jesus was only in the grave from Friday afternoon until sometime early Sunday morning. From our perspective, there's no way we could get three days and three nights from that. But from the biblical and rabbinic way of reckoning time, they could. For as Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah said, around 100 A.D., a day and a night make an ona, that is a 24-hour period. And the portion of an ona is is reckoned as a complete ona. So from the biblical way of reckoning time, both Jonah and Jesus were entombed for three days and three nights. And that was the sign Jesus said would be given. His resurrection from the dead would be the crowning sign of his divinity. And the resurrection is, for us, the most convincing evidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be. But even that would not and will not convince everyone, and Jesus knew it. When telling of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus said Abraham refused to allow Lazarus to go back from the grave to warn the rich man's brothers Because if they would not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither would they be persuaded if someone were to rise from the dead. Jesus knew even his resurrection 
would not be enough of a sign to persuade those who refuse to believe. But he also knew that those who were willing to believe, who were open to the facts, would believe even before the resurrection had taken place. And he declared that those who refused to believe would be judged for not accepting the evidence that had been given. Verses 31 and 32. The queen of the south shall rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now this cuts the heart out of the excuse, I'd believe if only I could be given enough evidence. That really doesn't hold water because the evidence given even before the resurrection was more than sufficient. In fact, those who responded positively to God's activity in the past actually condemned those who failed to acknowledge what Jesus was doing. They made it clear that God provides enough evidence to convince those who have eyes to see him at work. The Queen of Sheba responded to the wisdom of Solomon. She traveled from southern Arabia to Jerusalem to see if what she had heard was true. And when she spent time with Solomon and observed firsthand his wisdom, she worshipped the one who had given him his unparalleled wisdom. Surely the wisdom of Jesus was evidence of his divine connection. What he said rang true. It made sense. And if they would but listen with open minds and open hearts, they would acknowledge the source of that wisdom. To refuse to do so would bring judgment against them on Judgment Day. By the same token, the men of Nineveh responded to the preaching of Jonah The way they responded condemned those who refused to respond to Jesus' preaching. After hearing of God's coming judgment, the men of Nineveh repented in sackcloth and ashes. Even their animals were dressed in the symbols of repentance. I love telling that story to kids and picturing all the animals in the flocks of ducks with little gunny sacks on them. Surely, the preaching of Jesus should bring about the same response. After all, Jesus' preaching alone proved him to be greater than Jonah. Jonah brought a message of doom. Jesus brought a message of hope. The men of Nineveh's day took the message of doom as an invitation to repent. The men of Jesus' day were ignoring a message of hope and condemning themselves by doing so. So even before the resurrection, there were adequate reasons to believe what Jesus said. And even after the resurrection, 
there are still adequate reasons apart from the sign of Jonah to believe in him. The words of Jesus alone should be enough to draw anyone to him. What he said makes sense. And it will convict anyone who listens with an open heart and mind. But if we close our eyes to his wisdom and words, we will be condemned by those who responded to it. There's no problem with the message. And there's no lack of evidence. It was true for the men of Jesus' day, and it's even more true today. If you have a problem with the evidence, as Jesus made clear to his hearers, the problem is with you. Verses 33 to 36. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a peck measure, but on the lampstand, in order that those who enter may see the light. The lamp of your body is your eye. When your eye is clear, your whole body is also full of light. But when it's bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you may not be darkness. If, therefore, your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it shall be wholly illumined, as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. Jesus wasn't trying to hide anything by refusing to give them a sign from heaven. He wasn't hiding light in a cellar or under a basket. The light was there for all to see on the lampstand. What he said and did was there for everyone to see. It takes a clear eye, a healthy eye, to see. If they couldn't see, it wasn't due to the lack of light. It was because they had bad eyes. You know, a blind man is full of darkness, even in the brightest light. And that was their problem. They couldn't see the light because they were blind. And the real tragedy was that they had chosen to be blind. They'd been blinded by their sin. And they didn't want to see. Because to see would mean they would have to change. They would have to repent. Indeed, sin blinds us to the light of God. And in spite of what they might say, no man is an atheist because of lack of evidence. He chooses to be an atheist because he doesn't want to believe. God has made himself known to everyone, even apart from the scriptures, apart from special revelation, and even apart from the resurrection, apart from the sign of Jonah. God has made himself known through what he has made. We sang about that beautifully this morning. And he has placed knowledge of himself within man. Paul makes both of those points very clear in the first chapter of Romans. 
Those who refuse to acknowledge him do so because they do not want to acknowledge his claims on their life. They choose to cloud their eyes and live in darkness because they do not want to see. To do so, however, condemns them to a life of darkness. And eternal darkness as well. There is no denying that sin blinds us to who Jesus is. But if we will at least take a peek at him and listen to what he says, and examine the evidence that indicates he can be trusted, and then in faith allow him to remove the sin, we will be able to see clearly. We will be able to see who he is. And his light will flood into our life. It may not answer every question we have. There are some things that are beyond our understanding. But we will understand who he is, who we are, and why we are here. And that's certainly enough light to give us direction and to make life meaningful. The light of the world is Jesus. If you can't see that, it's not because you need more evidence to prove who he is. You just need to open your eyes. 